Right now, CBS 4's Carrie Codd is on the ground. And Carrie, we heard from BSO that they would have somebody on the scene at about 3.15. Have you been able to speak with anybody from the Broward Sheriff's Office? Briefly, Elliot, but not here on the scene. As you can imagine, it is quite chaotic. In fact, just the road into the school here is completely blocked with cars, as you can imagine. As concerned parents arrive here, students are... I'm Carrie Codd with CBS 4 News in Miami, Fort Lauderdale. And this is Ion Parkland, one year later. I arrived on campus that day to cover this tragedy minutes after it happened. And I've reported on it for much of the past year. In Fort Lauderdale, Carrie. Well, Rudabay, Andrew Pollack lays the blame at several people and several entities for allowing this shooting to happen, but he does lay. I'm Carrie Codd at the Broward Sheriff's Office. We've just gotten some video released to us from the Sheriff's Office. This shows Broward School. That's Resource right. There's Officers. a lot of anticipation about this announcement today, and as you mentioned, multiple sources have confirmed to CBS 4 News that Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to remove Sheriff Israel from. Over the past 12 months, I've established relationships with the victims' families, spoken with survivors, and really covered just about every one of the far-reaching tentacles of this tragedy that have touched all of our lives. As the one-year mark since the shooting approached, I started thinking, what's changed since Parkland? We've done so many stories about new rules and laws being passed and new revelations about the people involved, the failures of the system. But what's truly changed? So in this series of podcasts, that will be our focus. What's changed since Parkland? I'm Elliot Rodriguez in the CBS 4 newsroom, and we are following breaking news right now in Parkland. Reports of shots fired at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Students coming out crying, parents here anxious, looking for their children. A very chaotic scene, very sad scene. Someone executed my husband. They executed him. She was begging for her life. She covered Kara. And the guy shot right through her and killed both of them. These are the voices of the families of the Parkland victims. I can tell you what's too much. Somebody calling you, letting you know that your kid was shot four times in school. Make no mistake, there's no, you don't move on from this. These are the fathers, the mothers, and the wives of those who died on February 14, 2018 at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. We didn't expect to lose half our children. I sent my two children to school, it's what we do, and only one of my children came home. These words, these powerful words, reflect their reality. We were convinced that he was just maybe hurting in a hospital somewhere. I just wanted him to, you know, have fun and be a kid and not be next to his mom in the cemetery. The families have suffered and grieved. This past year, we've watched them suffer and grieve, and they will for the rest of their lives. But here's what I've noticed. The families have also shown a resolve and a depth of commitment to a public purpose, doing whatever they can to try and prevent these types of mass school shootings in the future. Well, they were 14 innocent children and uh, three grave staff members that were killed at school that day. That just shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen here in America. It shouldn't happen here in Parkland. It shouldn't happen anywhere. Anyway. It shouldn't happen anywhere. It shouldn't happen anywhere. And yet it did happen in this country again on February 14th, 2018.
engages in what sounded like gunfire. Three shots followed by additional shots. Uh, but we do know, according to BSO, they've now uh, confirmed that 14 victims in this mass shooting situation. Here are the facts. At 2.19 p.m. on February 14, 2018, a gunman armed with a semi-automatic rifle walked through an unlocked gate onto the campus of Marjorie Soman Douglas High School. Two minutes later, that gunman opened fire inside the freshman building on the campus. Fourteen students and three staff members who went to the school that day never returned home. And after that day, I and most other people here in South Florida and across the country asked once again, how could this happen? The deaths of the 17 led to outrage. It has to be a perimeter, and it has to be, at, you can't just walk into a school. Their deaths also led to an ongoing national conversation about important topics like school safety, gun control, and better mental health treatment. We want change! We want We need to be safe in our schools. No more of this. But I want to end gun violence, and this has to stop. We're here to fight for change. We're here to have our voices. Change needs to happen for our country. For Since the shooting, the victims' families took their pain and anger and turned it into meaningful action. They ran for elected office. They served on a state panel to investigate the shooting. They called out leaders and got legislation passed. They've taken different paths and used different philosophies to get to the same goal, demanding change. This is Episode 1, From Grief to Action. Hello, my friends. Hello, Manny. How are you? Good to see you again. You you That's Manny Oliver. No, we spoke to him at his office a few weeks ago. I was very, if not on the American dream, I was pretty close to it. Manny said his life was close to perfect prior to February 14th. A happy family, a fulfilling job, and time to pursue his passions. Okay, all right. Can you get somewhere where you're safe? Are you injured? No, but there's a lot of people around us that are injured. People are bleeding. Please, he's upstairs now. He's upstairs. There's been a shooting at the school, and there's kids running. Then February 14th happened. And suddenly he's not anymore. He's far from being a perfect life. His son, Joaquin, was on the third floor of the freshman building around 2.20 that day. Manny told me he remembers hearing about the shooting. Then he made a frantic flurry of phone calls and texts to Joaquin and his friends. It's me texting Joaquin with no answer. Where are you? What's going on? Give me a call. Hey, grab the phone. Where are you? Not to mention the voice messages. And then you start calling his friends, and they answer. Hey, Mr. Oliver, where's Joaquin? I don't know. I saw him later. I saw him this morning. I don't know where he is right now. He should be fine. Don't worry about it. Another friend. Hey. Have you seen Joaquin? No. Somebody told me they saw him on the other building. Joaquin Oliver was among the 17 murder victims. Manny said that's when he suddenly came face to face with a loss that he could have never imagined, the death of his best friend. And after a few days, Manny came to a realization. It's easy to feel that you're the victim. Poor me. I'm not giving enough time to feel better. No. Poor Joaquin. I need to find a way to do something every single day. I like to go to bed at night thinking, okay, this is what I did today. So I feel good. My son will be proud of me. I am still a father. I'm still a father. I just don't have my son with me.
Manny is an artist. He expresses himself through his creativity. We like to send our messages in a very graphic way. Like a billboard he put up in Boston last fall. It shows Joaquin's face with the message, If I had attended high school in Massachusetts instead of Parkland, Florida, I would likely be alive today. Manny's efforts are raw, uncompromising, and designed to get attention and make people question their beliefs, mostly about guns. For him, these projects are how he's turned his grief into action. So I'm giving my son a voice. And they say, okay, but you're the fathers of the victims. You know, no, dude, we are the victims. We represent the victims. And some people say, these guys, crazy, he lost his mind. No, I lost my son. What Manny does with art, I do with words. Your comments this week and those of our president have been pathetically weak. Fred Guttenberg's daughter, Jamie, also died on the third floor of the freshman building. We spoke with Fred recently outside a dance studio in Coral Springs, where Jamie trained. This was our life. Coming to this dance studio, dropping Jamie off, picking Jamie up. My wife sitting here inside on these benches, hanging out with the other dance moms, going back and watching as they're learning their dances for their next competition. Every day we have a reminder of what we don't have. So I'm not trying to fake it. I am emotional. He and Manny Oliver share more than the grief of losing a child. They share a passion for gun control. For Fred Guttenberg, his turning point came quickly after the shooting, and he soon had a national stage at a televised town hall to speak his mind. Fred's comments to Florida Senator Marco Rubio helped shape his persona as an activist. Senator Rubio, my daughter, running down the hallway at Marjorie Stoneman yes, Douglas was shot in the back yes, with an assault weapon. The weapon of choice. Yes, sir. Okay? It is too easy to get. It is a weapon of war. The fact that you can't stand with everybody in this building and say that, I'm sorry. Sir. When my daughter died, and almost immediately, I saw elected leaders, my elected leaders, Rubio and Trump, not be able to say the word guns in the violence that took my daughter that was my turning point. That was when I said, these guys are so beholden to this environment that the gun lobby actually is the problem because they're afraid to cross it. That week is sort of a blur, except for my constantly saying, I'm gonna break that lobby. I remember that about that week. And I remember thinking, those who are so beholden to that lobby that they can't talk about what killed my daughter, I'm gonna work to fire them. That's what I decided that week. Fred took his message to Twitter. And when I checked in January, he had more than 150,000 followers. I think the reason people started responding was actually very simple. I did it as Jamie's dad. That's who I am. You know, I didn't try to be a political person. I didn't try to write things as if I'm trying to be a political person. I am not a policy one. I'm not the guy who knows the most about gun laws and gun safety. I'm Jamie's dad. As individuals, many of the victims' families have taken on specific causes, and they all agree there is plenty of blame to go around for what happened February 14th. For Fred Guttenberg and Manny Oliver and several others, the focus is gun control. My name is Linda Beagle Shulman. I'm the mother of Scott J. Beagle. The Scott Beagle died at Stoneman Douglas, where he worked coach. as a geography oh, teacher. His mother, Linda, lives in New York, where she's lent her voice to the cause of gun control in that state. I would not even call it an effort. I would call it a mission. That's like my mission. This is an herb garden. Just, there was nothing here before besides just 
old rocks and not even good soil. I spoke with her on a recent Saturday when she visited a boys and girls club in North Lauderdale. She was there for a service event honoring Scott as young people planted an herb garden, planted flowers, and painted part of a hockey rink. She told me kids matter to Scott, and she's working to make sure his legacy is one of protecting them. I said it out loud, and um, if you say it, it's kind of if you say it out loud or write it on a list, you have to do it. So I said, no matter what it took, I was going to make sure that some sort of reasonable gun control legislation was passed. One of the most fascinating things I've learned through this process of speaking to the victims' families is discovering their unique turning point, the moment they decided to marry their pain to a purpose. My name is Max Schachter, and my little boy Alex was one of the victims of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas massacre in Parkland on Valentine's Day last year. For Max Schachter, his turning point came after a conversation with his family. There was a moment that said that, you know, I don't want to be here anymore, you know? Um, you know, I just, I just remember lying in, in the bed with Alex and, uh, you know, I used to lie with him at night and cuddle with him, uh, just the sweetest little boy. You know, there was a lot of times where I didn't, I didn't know if I could go on and I could wake up every morning. But I think uh, early on, you know, when we were sitting Shiva for Alex, my, my family said, Max, it would be great if we could do something good in Alex's memory. Max has three other children in schools in Broward, so it was natural for him to commit his efforts to school safety. Had to do something to make these schools safe and to protect them. You know, I couldn't depend on Broward County. They had already failed me and I already lost one son. And so, you know, um, it was that, that drive and that, that anger. Max made those issues a priority when he served on the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Commission. That commission investigated the shooting. Max's school safety efforts are wide-ranging and could lead to substantive change. We'll break down some of those ideas in another episode of this podcast. Our community and our kids will be much safer now that Sheriff Israel is out of office. Sheriff Israel said he judged his success by how many kids he kept out of jail. When BSO never arrested 18-1958, despite 45 calls to his house, they were following Israel's policies. Israel also changed the active shooter policy from the deputies shall go in to the deputies may go in. When eight BSO deputies listened to shots fired in the school and stayed outside, they were following Sheriff Israel's policies. I'm Andy Pollock. Uh, my daughter, Meadow, was burned at February 14th at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Andy Pollock has been one of the most recognizable and outspoken of the victim family members. It doesn't make sense. Fix it. Should have been one school shooting and we should have fixed it. Who can forget his impassioned plea during a listening session with President Trump at the White House just a week after the shooting? And I'm pissed because my daughter I'm not going to see again. She's not here. She's not here. She's at in, in North Lauderdale at whatever it is, King David Cemetery. That's where I go to see my kid now. And it, it stops. We all work together and come up with the right idea, and it's school safety. Andy told me that for him, time stopped on February 14th. My life is over, man. I don't have a life anymore. I don't smile. Uh, I don't pray as much. I don't have holidays, birthdays. 
Everything's gone. Every day is February 14th to me since this happened. You know, not, nothing's different than from when the day my daughter, I found out she was murdered. He believes there's a deep bucket of blame to go around for February 14th. He could have really uh, saved everyone on that third floor that day. He blames former Broward Sheriff's Deputy and School Resource Officer Scott Peterson, who was on the Stoneman Douglas campus that day and armed. Oh, do not approach the 12 or 1300 building. Stay at least 500 feet away at this point. Yet chose not to go into the freshman building as the shots rang out. He let my daughter get stalked and shot nine times on the third floor. I'm not the type of guy I'm just going to lay down and this guy's just going to go collect his pension and go run off into the sunset. So that that's not going to happen. And he also blames suspended Broward Sheriff Scott Israel and Broward School Superintendent Robert Runcie. Specifically, Andy believes Runcie's decisions enabled a culture of leniency in the school district. People were coming to me and saying, you know, Mr. Pollock, he threatened our lives at the school. We went to the administrators, you know, see something, say something. Students were coming forward and telling me they went to the administrators. This kid was going to do something bad. This kid was going to shoot the school up. And there was no... I couldn't find any records of it. Then, this man who says he was never political in his life resolved to make a difference. And I've been working nonstop on a mission to, to hold people accountable for what happened. Andy and several others point to one pivotal event, more than any other, as proof that their quest for accountability was working. I cannot possibly convey to you the grief that I have seen and felt in attending funerals and spending time with these families. The hardest thing I've ever had to do as governor is try to find the words to console a parent who lost their child. Less than a month after the shooting, many of the victims' families worked with Florida Governor Rick Scott and the Florida legislature to do something that many thought unthinkable. They passed a comprehensive bill known as the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Act. Every student and teacher is safer now in the whole state of Florida because of that bill. The bill deals with school safety. It created an armed guardian program. It also placed restrictions on purchasing a gun in Florida, and it put red flag laws in place to allow law enforcement to petition a court to keep guns away from people who were deemed a danger to themselves or others. I think that was a game changer. Ryan Petty, I'm the father of Elena Petty, who was uh, killed at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Ryan Petty told me he sees the passage of that bill as proof that the victims' families could be successful at turning their grief into action. For a lot of people, it didn't go far enough in certain directions and for others it went too far. It was taking ground that we could take. So many, after so many of these tragedies, nothing gets done and, and this felt like a big step forward. And so I, I think getting that passed and just three weeks later and it was pivotal. It, all of a sudden the families became a political force to be listened to at least. If they're not for us, they're against us, okay? They're in the pockets of the NRA. We need to end the guns. We need to get rid of them, ban them forever. We want assault rifles off the market. Automatic, semi-automatic have no place in civilian society. Ryan said he understood the focus on gun control in the aftermath of the shooting, but he didn't believe that should be the main issue moving forward. There's no question in my mind the firearm played a role here, right? But my fear was that this would be the sole focus the sole point of conversation, the sole point of discussion. And, and like so many tragedies before, where that has been the only, the only thing talked about, the only thing discussed, the only, the only political issue that comes out of it, and nothing gets done. And I, and I felt for the first time in all of this, strangely enough, for the first time, I started to feel angry. And I said, I can't, 
I can't allow my daughter's life to be taken and for nothing to be done about this. And if we go down the path of, of arguing about firearms and the role of firearms in society and we, and we focus on more controls and the opposite argument about you know, the, the absolute right to, 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 to keep and bear arms, um, we're going to go nowhere as a country. Ryan said he met with Andy Pollack and they resolved to focus on school safety. Then they heard from Governor Rick Scott. That led to the bill being passed and to Petty serving on the Stoneman Douglas Commission investigating the shooting. For him, it's been therapeutic. It's forced me to deal with some of my feelings about it and to be able to get to the point where I can talk about it and, and, uh, and through the work on the MSD Commission, I actually relive a lot of the moments um, in, in, in very graphic detail, unfortunately. Um, in that in that search for the truth. Children in the deadly school shooting are now running for the Broward County School Board. Lori Alhadeth and Ryan Petty announced their candidacies this morning. CBS 4's Ted Scouten has more on why. They Ryan and another Parkland parent, Lori Alhadeth, decided to take their pain and anger and run for political office. Alhadeth filed to run for Broward School Board District 4. Lori Alhadeth's daughter, Alyssa, died in the shooting. She won her race for the school board. Ryan Petty did not. I spoke with Lori Oladef after a recent news conference on security changes in Broward schools. I miss my life. I miss my daughter. I, I don't need any of this if I could just get Alyssa back. But Alyssa is with me. Alyssa is in my heart. She has empowered me to be here today. She has empowered me to want to make change and make sure that this never happens again and that we make sure that our schools are safe for our children. We spoke near an eagle statue in the school board building. That's the mascot of Stoneman Douglas High School. The names of the victims are listed on the statue, and it's obvious that it serves as a constant and visible reminder of what was taken from the Parkland families. I'm up there on the day as pushing people. They have to see my face for the next four years and remember what happened to my daughter and 16 others and go past this eagle every day. And we need to keep going because at the end of the day, the test scores don't matter if our kids don't come home alive. For each family, it's been a journey to get to this place of activism and action. He was a friend and a neighbor and a mentor. From what I heard, he, he was watching the cameras and just jumped in his golf cart and went right to the scene. And we're going to miss him. I don't know that we've even really started grieving it. Um, we've been really busy with, you know, lots of different things, events honoring Chris, um, protests to, to march for our lives, um, going to legislature to ask them to enact specific um, new gun safety. My name is Debbie Hickson. I'm the wife of Chris Hickson, who was murdered in the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting on Valentine's Day 2018. When Debbie Hickson saw news of the shooting, she knew her husband Chris, a campus monitor at Stoneman Douglas and a former member of the armed forces, would be in the middle of it. Hickson was shot almost as soon as he entered the freshman building to investigate what was going on. He died a short time later. Debbie Hickson was left to continue her career as a teacher and suddenly became a single mom to her son, Corey, who has special needs. It's kind of like standing still but moving forward, if that makes sense. So I get up every day, go to work every day, you know, get stuff for Corey, but I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels. Like I'm just not sure, um, you know, how to make it work. So. Well, he was, you know, your life for... 30 years. 
I was trying to explain that to someone, you know, for 30 years, I never, there's not a decision I made that I didn't make with Chris. So, you know, you second guess yourself. And, you know, we have Corey and, and he is medically needy. And I have to make choices. He had surgery, implant stuff done, you know, is it right? Should he have the laughing gas? Should he have this? You know, and it's, it's not that I can't do it because clearly I, I'm more than capable of doing it, but I don't want to do it by myself. That wasn't the plan. Debbie Hickson has used her anger to motivate her action. People are like, why are you, know, what are you angry about? I'm angry, which is why I think maybe I didn't get to the, really the grieving part yet. I'm still very angry at a lot of things. School safety being one of them, this is probably the most preventable school shooting um, of any of the school shootings that happened. There were so many warning signs, so many things that could have been done on that day that weren't done. And I can't change it, but it still just makes me, it makes me mad. We spoke with Debbie in mid-January at her home. So I got quilts everywhere. Um, She's got pictures. boxes of books, cards, and mementos that people from all over the country have sent her. This tree was given to us by the Navy Reserve unit Chris was in um, as a remembrance for him. So the tree blo blooms in February and it blooms yellow, which yellow was his color. She's chosen to work on gun buyback programs. Whether you're on pro-gun or anti-gun, um, at the end of the day, none of us are saying everybody should have their guns taken away. We all just believe that people who own guns should be responsible with them. Many of the victims' families have set up foundations for their loved ones, and they continue to work on specific issues important to them. But many of them seem to speak with one voice. Mission. 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 Accountability. 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 Accountable. 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 The victims' families created a group called Stand with Parkland. They're choosing to focus on improving school safety, demanding responsible firearms ownership, and better mental health screening. Its president is... I'm Tony Montalto, and I'm the father of Gina Rose Montalto. She was a 14-year-old freshman on February 14th of 2018, and she was tragically killed at her school in Parkland, Florida. Gina Montalto was one of the first people shot and killed inside the freshman building. Her parents, Tony and Jennifer, met with me at the Parkland Library a few weeks ago where Gina's artwork was on display. That is someone I don't even recognize anymore. <laughs> um, she sketched that for us last year for our wedding anniversary. And that's a picture of me on my wedding day. They are kind, quiet, thoughtful people struggling to come to terms with the sudden death of a child. Now that I find myself with this voice and this... Uh, this opportunity, um, we have to make the most of it. It's been a, a difficult transition because although I've met some, some great people and we've seen some great things, those all came at a terrible, terrible cost. You know, Gina was our daughter. She was our firstborn and uh, she was uh, a great, great kid. Every day I have to go out and, and when I speak on these subjects, she's the first thing I think of. Tony has tried to take this tragedy and the pain from it to make a difference. Our loved ones were shot at school. Firearms were clearly responsible, uh, or clearly part of that, right? The individual who did this had some mental health issues, and he was able to gain access to the campus when it should have been secured. So in our one incident, clearly all these three things were an issue. And that's what we need to 
get our policymakers and our lawmakers aware of that it's all three of these things and the interplay among them that need to be looked at to help solve this uniquely American problem. The issues that affected us here could happen anywhere. And people hear that, but they don't believe that. So it's our job to, to point that out and help shine a light on many of these subjects. Several of the family members of the victims told me the same thing. They feel the biggest roadblock to making change is changing people's belief that a school shooting can't or, or won't happen in their community. Certainly the people of Parkland believed that prior to February 14th. Now they're trying to walk a double line, mourning the murder of a child or husband while dedicating themselves to honoring their loved one with work that protects others. When people say, I'm sorry for your loss, although I get their notion, I sometimes want to scream and say, I didn't lose Christopher. He didn't walk in a building and not find his way out. Someone took him away from me. And that's the difference, I think, sometimes between people who lose someone in gun violence and someone if they're sick or they're in an accident. Someone executed my husband. They executed him. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a drive-by. It wasn't a mistaken identity. They looked at him and they shot him in the chest three times. I wanted to, number one, find out what happened that day, hold those people accountable, and try to um, put measures in place uh, to try to protect children, not only in Broward County, but around the country, and try to prevent this from happening again. Grieving for parents shouldn't have to do this, you know what I mean? And I, I, I have to, for my daughter, expose these people. You know, they, they should have accepted responsibility but instead, I, I have to do it. I have to force it now. I have to force exposing them. I felt uh, responsibility to my daughter to make sure that um, she's not forgotten. The circumstances of her, of her death are not forgotten. And that uh, if there's a way we can make this more difficult, I, I won't say prevent, because I just don't think you can prevent anything 100%. But if we can make this more difficult or less likely to happen, then then that's a way to, uh, to honor her. He said, I want to be remembered for something big. I want to be remembered like young Lennon, like Muhammad Ali. I want to be remembered as, as someone that really did something big happen, someone that made something big happen. So I owe him that. He, sent, he was very clear with that message. So part of what I'm doing, besides giving Joaquin a voice, making statements that are very impactful for some people. I am also making sure that he will be remembered. One thing that really stood out to me in reporting this story is how the victims' families that we spoke with rely on each other. They meet and they talk often. They become a support group for each other. I really like them. I enjoy being with them. And um, the strength that we all have together and the friendship gets us through these hard times and you know we don't have to ask each other how you doing you know or um, everybody knows everybody's feeling we all have a shared tragedy it's interesting we don't typically greet each other in the usual way it's very often not very often that we ask each other how are you doing um, we just skip that question and just sort of get started. It's been one of the blessings that has come out of this tragedy is to have other families that have gone through what we've gone through to be able to talk about it. I didn't know these people beforehand, but they're my family now. When we're together, 
is really the only time when we feel, I don't know if normal is the right word for it, but we feel like we're in a better place. We feel, you know, we feel like we're amongst that only group of people who do understand. Last February 13th, these families were regular people living their lives, mostly strangers to one another. But last February 14th, around 2.21 p.m., that all changed. These families have been thrust into the roles of reluctant activists. They become recognizable names on social media, and they've lost not only a loved one, but a part of themselves and a part of their privacy. They reminded me often that these are not roles they want to play, they are roles they feel they must play. So that's why, you know, we're out there. We don't want anybody else to join this club. Children and staff members should just come home from school. It's school, they're supposed to be safe. The Parkland shooting casts ripple effects across South Florida, our state, and the country. Its tentacles stretch far, and much has changed since February 14th. That's why we'll explore other critical issues revealed by the shooting in future episodes of this podcast. We'll look at the gun issue, risk protection orders, school safety, and what we've learned about mental health awareness. We'll also remember the victims, those people forever frozen in time on February 14th. I'm Kerry Codd with CBS4 News. This is Ion Parkland.